good morning. It was exciting for me to come in and see all these boxes. I'm excited to know that they are going to include a gospel message that is going out across the world. So thank you for all those who brought those boxes in. I'm really excited to deliver them this week for everybody. Today, we are continuing with our series called Jesus at the Table. It's going through the Gospel of Luke and the many, many times where Jesus finds himself at a meal and what happens during that meal and what he teaches. So you know, we've read a lot of talk about Jesus reclining at the table and talking, engaging, rebuking, whatever it is. Well, today's story is actually very different from that. And this, it has a, it's probably one of my favorite Bible stories in all of Scripture. But I want to ask you a question first. Have you ever sat down to a meal and have it get immediately interrupted? Right? I think, particularly for parents, that happens quite frequently. Maybe you take a bite or two and then something happens. Maybe a child needs to use a bathroom. Or you get a phone call or someone's at your front door. And often these, these interruptions are extremely frustrating. You just want to sit and eat. But this story from Scripture today is the exact opposite. It is about a meal that gets immediately interrupted. But what happens is something that's so amazing, and I hope you can be amazed with me. Um, and like I said, it's one of my favorite Bible stories. It has a lot of twists and turns, even has some humor in the story, at least the way I read it. So today, we're going to walk together through our passage, which is found in Luke 24, verses 30, uh, 13 to 35. But first, I want to summarize where we're at in the scriptures. Because last week, when Brian spoke, he left us a bit hanging. Jesus was at the Last Supper, right? So we're kind of leapfrogging over really what was Jesus' most incredible accomplishment, which was dying on the cross, right, and rising again. So today, um, we're going to focus more on Jesus' resurrection. So know that we've already covered Jesus dying on the cross. So preceding our story today, in the beginning of Luke chapter 24, we read how the women went to the tomb early in the morning with some burial spices. And then they found the tomb. At the tomb, they found that the stone was rolled away. There was no body of Jesus. Then two angels appeared to them out of the blue, and they explained how Jesus had risen. Jesus was alive. These two women ran back to the 11 disciples and the other followers of Jesus who were hiding out in the upper room and told them their story. But, of course, nobody believed them, right? But they had enough interest to uh, check it out. So Peter and we know also from Scripture, John ran to the tomb to check it out. But they, they didn't see anything. They just left confused about what had happened. And that is where our story picks up. So starting uh, Luke chapter 24, a passage is called On the Road to Emmaus. And it picks up in verse 13. It's very interesting, though. There's a, a, a Greek word at the beginning of verse 13 that is not translated in our English versions. But it basically means behold, pay attention, take note. So we're going to read this story very carefully, verse by verse, to see what Jesus wants us to take note of. Verse 13 says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. So let's pause there. Two of them. Two of who? Two of Jesus' followers. Remember? The disciples, as well as other followers, were in the upper room hiding this weekend. And, it, and we learn later one of the men was named uh, Cleopas, one of the travelers, the other person walking along the road, their, their name or their gender is not given. Um, so it's interesting, it says, when, we, when it says the women went back to the upper room to share what they saw at the tomb, we learned that it wasn't just the 11 disciples at that point, there were all these other followers of Jesus in that upper room. And sometimes we forget that because we look at artwork 
and we see it's always the, you know, the 11 apostles are depicted in the artwork, but there were a lot of followers of Jesus, men and women included, who were in that upper room. And two of those people who were in that upper room were these two people who were walking on the road to Emmaus. So just to give a little context here, verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So they were discussing amongst themselves as they walked from Jerusalem back to Emmaus all the incredible events that had happened concerning Jesus. They talked about his death, his burial. They talked about, my gosh, can you believe what the women said this morning about Jesus not being there, what the angels said? And they, they were trying to make sense of it all, but they were really struggling. Verse 15, as they talked and discussed these things together, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. So this is the first time in the Gospel of Luke that we actually see Jesus alive after his death on the cross. The angels just announced it to the women at the tomb, but here Jesus shows up in a very unassuming way. He just starts walking beside them. It's kind of crazy. He drew near to them. He showed personal interest in them. He made himself available to them. He wanted to minister to them. And I love he entered into their confusion, right? It shows this, this just the personal nature of Jesus. So verse 16, very interesting, it says, but they were kept from recognizing Jesus. So here these two disciples and followers are walking. Jesus is beside them. They have no idea that it's Jesus. Does that not seem a bit absurd? I mean, they had just put all their hope in Jesus. They thought he was the Messiah just three days prior, and now they didn't even recognize him. But it says, Luke says that they were kept from recognizing him. So we, we don't understand why God restrained them from recognizing Jesus. I think one possible explanation that makes a lot of sense to me is that God wanted them to see Jesus based, not based on who they thought he was, but based on a true understanding of who he really was and about how Jesus was about to reveal that to him. Like, I believe God wanted them to set aside your preconceived ideas of who Jesus is and be open to seeing him in a whole new light. So verse 17 uh, Jesus asked them, well, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I'm sure Jesus knew the answer to that, right? But he asked it anyway. They stood still, their faces downcast. So Luke knows that these travelers were sad, their faces were downcast. One commentator puts it this way. Their words simply could not comfort them, and in essence, they were pooling their ignorance. As a result, they stood still looking sad. I thought that was an interesting phrase. They were pooling their ignorance when they discussed everything that had happened. So in case you're unfamiliar with that term, pooling your ignorance is when a group of people get together, they share their opinions about something, but nobody really has good knowledge on the subject. They're kind of gathering all their ignorance in one place, and they, they just can't end up with an accurate understanding of what they're talking about. And this is really the situation here, right? They were sad, they were downcast, despite all their talking and rationalizing and supposing, going back and forth, they could not wrap their minds around what had happened and what it all meant. They were pooling their ignorance. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, I'm going to pause there. I thought it's interesting. Luke deliberately gives the name Cleopas. And, you know, in today's news, if you get a news report, you often hear, well, unnamed sources say, right? And it makes you doubt the veracity of what they're talking about. But here, Luke gives the name of a man to show this is a reliable account. And Luke does this throughout his entire gospel. So back to verse 18. One of them named Cleopas asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Modern day translation would be, are you kidding me? You just came from Jerusalem and you don't know the big news? But in reality, there could have been a lot of people in Jerusalem who really didn't know what happened when Jesus died that day. Now, it was headline news to Jesus' followers. They were devout followers of his. But remember, crucifixions happened a lot back then. You know, it could have just, you know, but others in Jerusalem, it might have just been another Roman crucifixion to them. Verse 19, Jesus asked, well, what things? What things happened? What comes next is my favorite part of the story. It's so rich. They proceeded to explain to Jesus everything about Jesus. <laughs> is that not funny? It's so ironic, right? So I wonder inside if Jesus chuckled to himself, like, oh, now they're going to tell me all about myself, you know? So they say, they, continuing on with our story, well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. So here we see them kind of giving a litany of political news. Because in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was a very political event. And Jesus had just been crucified. And if you know in these verses, it says, we had hoped that Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, they had hoped that Jesus was going to bring God's kingdom on earth and be able to free them from Roman oppression. But now they had lost all hope. It's very interesting at the end of the, these verses here, it says, and, it, and, and it's the third day since all this took place. So remember, they were close followers of Jesus. So somehow they knew about Jesus' promise to rise again in three days, but they still couldn't wrap their minds around it. So let's continue. What else did Jesus say about himself? <laughs> uh, what, what else did they tell Jesus about himself? So verse 22, in addition, some of our women, now remember, there were women as well as men in that upper room and people who followed Jesus. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and they told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, Peter and John, and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. So it's interesting that all that they just said right now and recited to Jesus was actually the essence of the Easter story, right? They told Jesus about his earthly ministry, his death, his burial, and they even talked about his possible resurrection from the reports of the women. But instead of it bringing them a sense of hope and joy and victory and purpose, it, it made them sad and downcast and, and felt a great sense of loss. So in essence, they were admitting in the end that the one in whom they had placed all their hope in had let them down. Their hopes didn't pan out. It appeared that they made a huge mistake to put all their hope in Jesus. And they were really devastated at this realization. So let's see how Jesus replied to the explanation and summary of events that these two followers of Jesus offered. So verse 25, Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. So Jesus went from being, not saying much and being a sympathetic listener to challenging them regarding their foolishness. That seems pretty harsh to us. When you look at the Greek word for foolish, it literally means without understanding. So he's saying, you, you don't understand the thing. And it actually carries a sense of blame. So 
They were the ones, he's basically saying, you're not intellectually curious enough to search this out. Did you, did you take the woman's testimony? Did you see if it matched the Old Testament scriptures? He's basically challenging them. Did, did you let your preconceived ideas of who I am be an obstacle to understanding the truth? One commentator put it this way. I love this. They were sluggish to know and believe the whole counsel of God's word. They were quick to believe in the promises concerning the kingdom and the removal of the Roman yoke, but they were slow to believe the, promise, the prophecies of a suffering savior who must die for our sins. They, must know some, they knew something about his glory, but not his sufferings. So, before, so Jesus keeps going on. Before they could object to be calling foolish and slow of understanding, Jesus launches into, and I love this, what has got to be one of the most amazing Bible studies ever taught. So we read in verse 26, Jesus says, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That's just, I would love to have been there. Um, one commentator put it this way. It's kind of, kind of funny. He says, with breathtaking sweep and exegetical precision, this anonymous fellow traveler retells scripture's story. It is Israel's story, all right, but the stranger tells it in quite a new way. The last time they heard anyone talk about the Bible in such an invigorating fashion was, well, never mind, <laughs> right? Jesus, right? So Jesus is basically telling them that their understanding was incomplete, it was flawed, it was deficient, and ultimately it was deceptive. He wanted them to go back and interpret scriptures in light of his death and his resurrection. So Luke doesn't provide the exact words, like what exactly did Jesus teach them? But he probably focused on the fact that he didn't come to be a military leader to achieve a victory, but he, he, he achieved a better victory through suffering, right? And this was likely confusing to them because that was contrary to what they grew up with their traditional Jewish teaching. Perhaps Jesus pointed out Psalm 22 or Isaiah 53, which talked about how God's chosen one was going to suffer. So Luke notes that Jesus walked through what was said about him in all the scriptures. I can't even imagine how long it must have taken, right? So verse 28 says, as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was, he's like, okay, see you later. Jesus keeps on walking. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So Jesus acted as if he was going to go on farther, right? He didn't want to force his company onto these disciples. Um, and although they didn't know that this was Jesus in their midst, they just could not let him go. There was just something too extraordinary about him. In other words, they were saying, Jesus, come join us at our table. Verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. These words are almost identical to the words that Luke wrote in Luke 22 that Brian spoke about last week at the Last Supper, right? There in Luke 22, Luke writes, he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them. So he's making a connection to the Last Supper here. But let's be clear, these two travelers, they were not at the Last Supper with Jesus, right? But remember, on the day our story takes place, they were in the upper room with all the disciples. Surely, they were all talking about, oh my gosh, and then what Jesus said at the Last Supper and what he did, and they were all trying to make sense of this. So they must have had 
an understanding of what Jesus had said to the disciples. So notice what Jesus did when he sat down at the table with them. I find this so interesting. So Jesus was the invited guest, right? But he assumed the role of host. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them. So imagine this, imagine you're at your house, you invite somebody over for dinner and they walk in and instead of going to sit down and relax until dinner is prepared, they walk straight into your kitchen and they finish off the meal preparations and they tell you to sit down, right? That's essentially what Jesus did. So he became the host and he started serving them. So Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And not only would Jesus stay with them, but he would feed them. So Jesus wanted to be more than just a guest in their home. Uh, one person puts it this way. He is always to be so much more. He comes in to be the unseen host. He comes in to take charge and to lead in our fellowship that he might minister, lead, feed, and sustain. He leads, we follow. So what began as a simple dinner in the home of two tired, tri tired travelers turned into something really special. So let's look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized Jesus. All of a sudden, like, oh, it's Jesus. And then he disappears from their sight. <laughs> like, it's just so crazy, this story. So I like to make a special note. This is likely the shortest meal ever in the Bible. So in case you, you're a Bible trivia person, shortest meal ever in the Bible. Jesus was at the table for only a moment. Scripture doesn't even say he even took a bite, and he disappeared. So previously, these followers were kept from recognizing Jesus, right? So now they suddenly knew who he was when he broke the bread. So how did this happen? We're not exactly sure, um, but perhaps maybe when he broke the bed, they saw the scars on his hands, right? Or maybe there was something familiar in the way that, that he moved, or maybe there's a, a, a familiar expression on his face. Scripture doesn't say, but what we do know is the result was phenomenal. Everything this traveling companion shared with them while they walked along the road to Emmaus suddenly made sense. It was in the breaking of the bread that they finally made the connection to the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross and why it was necessary and how all those scriptures pointed to that. Verse 32, so they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Can't you be, see them, like this, Jesus disappearing, and they're looking at each other, and they're talking to each other. Are you kidding me? The whole time it was him, and they're kind of knocking each other on the shoulder. Like, I can just envision how they were talking with one another and trying to process the meaning of all of this. And they, they say to each other, my gosh, my heart was burning. Yeah, my, my heart was burning too, right? How it all suddenly came true in a more wonderful way than they ever could have imagined. So that burning inside was the Holy Spirit. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, is to open our eyes to the truth. So the Holy Spirit confirmed the truth in their hearts that Jesus was indeed resurrected from the dead, and that even though Jesus was now gone from their side, they know now that Jesus is alive, and that this was actually how it was supposed to happen according to God's plan. So verse 33, they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. I love this simple sentence. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now remember in the beginning of our passage, how far did they walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus? Seven miles, okay? So I looked it up. If you walk at a normal pace, it's about two hours and 15 minutes. They could have possibly gone slower because they were sad, right? They're probably walking like this back to Emmaus. 
But now it says, yeah, and they, you know, they were sad, their hopes were dashed, and this is probably how they walked. But after Jesus revealed himself, it says they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Now remember, earlier in the story, it says the day was almost over when Jesus came into their house. So by now, it's probably dark. But they're probably like bowling back to Jerusalem. They cannot wait to get back to share the amazing news. They had this anticipated thrill of sharing with all the people in the upper room what had happened. Another interesting note, there's no evidence that any of them actually ever ate any of the bread that Jesus broke, right? So my guess is they took that bread and stuffed it in their clothes and set out on their way. So it's probably the first biblical takeout meal ever. <laughs> so they returned all the way back to Jerusalem, another seven miles to travel, again, at least two hours. Can you just imagine what they were talking about that they were hurrying back to Jerusalem? I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall or a fly on their shoulder as they walked back to hear what they were talking about. Let's continue with our story. It says there, they, they arrive in Jerusalem, they go to the upper room. There they found the 11 and those with them, remember it's a larger group, assembled together and, and, the, 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 not, and saying, not, this is not them saying, the, the people in the upper room were telling them. When they walked in, they're like, it's true, the Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. And then the two, the two travelers, told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bed, bread. So imagine this, they finally arrive back in Jerusalem. They're just like bursting. They cannot wait to get out their good news that Jesus was alive. But before they could, the crowd in the upper room was telling them, the Lord appeared to Simon Peter. So how did Jesus do that? He appeared to Simon Peter. He talked with them for a long time on the road to Emmaus. Like he must have spent considerable time with them as well as appearing to, to Peter. I mean, Jesus sure was busy on this resurrection day, right? So they must have had a hard time containing their amazement. Maybe they said, well, you're not going to believe what we have to share, right? And then they tell every detail that they can think of. They must have shared about how Jesus opened up the Old Testament scriptures, how they pointed to his deity, to his mission on earth, to die for the sins of man, telling, them, telling everybody these things. And I imagine the room must have been filled with laughter, excitement, hope, and joy, with a complete reversal of what they had been feeling earlier that day. All the various reports about Jesus' resurrection came together to provide undeniable proof that he was indeed alive, that he did conquer death. So at this point, they were no longer pooling their ignorance, right? They were sharing th things about what had actually happened. Now, my passage ends there, but I'm going to read a few more verses in, and this is going to be spoken on next week by Steve, just because you still see these two travelers in the story. So in verse 36... It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. So some context. These two travelers are telling everybody in the upper room what had happened. All of a sudden, Jesus appears there. Peace be with you. He said to them, verse 44, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This is the part of the story where I feel utter jealousy. I'm going to admit this. You know why? Because this is the second time these two travelers got to hear Jesus open up the scriptures and hear what they meant, right? Repetition's good for learning, right? So they got to see Jesus twice in his resurrected state, and they got to hear Jesus explain scriptures twice. I, I mean, I'm so jealous. Are you? I hope, I was just, just amazing. 
So hopefully you can now more appreciate why I love this story. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. Lots of twists and turns. But you see how gracious Jesus was to walk up to them in an unassuming way, enter their confusion, and open up their minds to the truth. So what can we take away from this? My first point is that we need to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So in verse 32, it says, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So we see the Holy Spirit alive and active in this story. So, but this also demonstrates that belief in Jesus as the risen Lord was not self-evident to the earliest followers. Even after his crucifixion, even after there were stories that he rose again, they still needed divine revelation in order to understand the magnitude of what had just happened. So there, back in those days, there were two reasons that people came to believe in Jesus as the risen Lord and Savior. The first one's obvious. He physically appeared to them after everybody saw him die on the cross and be buried, right? Um, and the second one is because Jesus opened up the scriptures and he pointed out how he was fulfilling those scriptures. So back in that day, they needed divine revelation to understand and believe. We too actually need divine revelation to understand who Jesus is. But of course, it's going to look different in our day, right? We're not going to have physical Jesus appearing to us in our lives. We don't have that opportunity. But we do have many evidentiary reasons to believe in the historical fact of the resurrection. I can't get into that today, but if you have time, research you know, his, you know, uh, the evidence for the historicity of the resurrection. There are many. So we have that, but we also have the Holy Spirit alive and active in our day, opening people's eyes to the truth. So I have to ask you, is your heart burning within you when you hear about Jesus? If it is, that's evidence that God is working in your heart to draw you to Jesus. And we recently had a series on the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, we talked about this first. Uh, Jesus said this before he died. He said, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, or the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So in get, instead of getting to see and experience the risen Jesus in a physical way, we now have the Holy Spirit to awaken our hearts to the truth. This makes me think of a famous painting I came across by Diego Velasquez called the kitchen maid. I don't know if you're familiar with this, this artwork, but here in the foreground is a maid, and if you look, she's preparing the food for a meal, but on her face, she looks distracted, right? She's not looking at what she's doing. She's just kind of, you can tell she's listening in to what's going on in the other room, right? So this artist, and, and in this portrait, in the, in the background, it's supposed to be Jesus and the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. So they're, they're having their conversation, and she's like, like listening in, right? So the artist was making a point that her heart was also burning within her. It wasn't just those two travelers. That when God awakens your heart, you're going to be attuned. You're going to be listening, trying to discern the truth about Jesus. So if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus and the saving act of dying for our sins and rising again in victory, if your heart is burning within you, when you hear all that Jesus has done for you, that's a spiritual tug from God. Don't ignore it. Don't try and quench it. Don't try and discount it. God is speaking to you. He wants you to embrace it and turn to him in saving faith. Jesus seeks to come into your life. He says in Revelation, this is Jesus speaking, 
He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So Jesus does want to enter into your life, but he is never going to force himself in. So just like he didn't force himself into the home of the two travelers, right? He waited to be invited in. So we must invite him in, and I encourage you to do that today if you have not yet done so. But this point of responding to the promptings of the Holy Spirit is also valuable and important to us as believers, those of us who have already placed our trust in the risen Christ. We also need to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And one of these promptings is to be excited about the good news of Jesus and to share this good news with others. I love this picture. Like, people are just so excited. Probably makes me think of the two travelers running, going back to Jerusalem at night, and they're like, you know, skipping along the way. They cannot contain their excitement to share their news, right? They could not wait to get into the company and share their news. So before they were despondent, probably lacked energy, but now they're energized by the truth of the resurrection. It was a true game changer, utter game changer in their life. So when was the last time we have been energized like this to share the good news with somebody who needs to hear it, right? If Jesus has been a game changer in our life, if, if Christ has brought us out of death into life, if he is the old is gone, the new has come, we are new creations, that's a game changer. So we need to act and share that game changer with other people. And just like Jesus opened the scriptures up so they could understand, God gives us wisdom to open up his scriptures so that other people can understand when we talk with them. The second point is to value the whole counsel of God's word. So in this story, we see an interesting blend of two things. First, you had these two travelers who actually knew a lot about scripture because they were telling Jesus the things that they knew. They had some Bible knowledge, right? But that Bible knowledge, despite that, they completely missed the glaring truth of who Jesus is and what he had done, right? So their knowledge of scripture would have been the Old Testament at the time was kind of incomplete and shallow and misguided. So as I mentioned before, they had a lot of preconceived notions of what the Messiah would be like. And these preconceived ideas was a barrier for them to truly see who Jesus was and why his death and resurrection were necessary. So Jesus, again, had to explain to them all the scripture, the whole counsel of God's word, so they could understand. And it's, uh, these uh, verses point that out. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So while these followers, these two followers, knew parts of scripture, they didn't take into account all of scripture. So Jesus had to use the whole counsel of God's word to open their eyes to the truth. So I love this. Jesus teaching them from scripture and showing them the correct understanding of God's word demonstrates just how much Jesus valued the written word. He used his spoken word, his oral teaching, to emphasize their need to value and turn to the written word of God. I'm going to say that again because I think that's so powerful. So Jesus used his written word to point them back, uh, his oral word, sorry, to point them back to the written word and how important that is. So he showed them how important it is to understand God's word. And that when they do so, then they have the capacity to understand the things that are happening around them. So another reason I love how Jesus pointed back to Scripture is because we have the same Scripture at our disposal, right? That so encourages me. So we don't have to have the physical Jesus here. We have the Scriptures that Jesus pointed to to show who he was. 
So we actually, in a way, have an advantage over them, right? Because we not only have the Old Testament scriptures, we have the New Testament scriptures, which teach us the meaning of the resurrection and how we can live in the light of that. So we are like, we're doubly blessed with the amount of scripture that we have. Plus, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us opening our eyes to the truth. So Jesus showed them the enormous value of God's word for their day-to-day lives. He emphasized the Bible's authority and its indispensability in the life of a believer. And a commentator puts it this way, let us not miss the significance of this. Here, the exalted and glorified Lord shows great enthusiasm and places great importance on the written word. We might think that the exalted Lord would be independent of the scriptures, but no, he took them immediately to it. Does anything reveal the priority and importance of the Bible any more than this event? So it just shows you, you, you can't just like admire Jesus or follow Jesus without it being linked directly to his word. So I have a couple questions for us to consider today. Do we value God's word to this degree? Do we pool our ignorance, sharing mere opinions with our friends? Or do we seek out understanding from God's word? Do we value the entire counsel of God's word or we just read little bits here and there? And a convicting one, when we have questions, do we go to God or do we go to Google, right? So these are challenging and convicting questions to all of us, myself included. Sometimes, like these followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, we are confused by our life circumstances. We don't know what to make of them. We're downcast. We have trouble seeing God's purposes in it. We struggle to see Jesus active in our lives. This pastor puts it this way. When you can't see Jesus, look to the scriptures. When you can't see what Jesus is doing in your life, you can't hear him speaking to you, look to the scriptures. Go to your Bible, see him there, hear him there. If you want to hear God's voice, read his words, read the scriptures. I do believe that as we read and meditate on the Bible, the Holy Spirit takes what we are reading and helps apply it to our hearts and lives. So God's word is such an amazing treasure. We need to value it, we need to turn to it, we need to allow God's Holy Spirit to speak to us through it. My last point, And a challenge to myself as well is to extend hospitality to others. And this brings us full circle back to our theme, which is Jesus at the table, right? So these two travelers felt a burning in their hearts as they were walking to Emmaus. And they felt compelled to, it it says he urged Jesus, they even grabbed his cloak and brought him into their house. Like that's how much they wanted Jesus to enter into their home. Well, the same burning can happen to us as we walk along the road with other people in our lives, right? We could feel moved in our spirit. We could feel compelled to reach out to them, to help them, to invite them over, to show hospitality to them. But unfortunately, we often push that feeling off for another time. We tell ourselves, well, now's not convenient. I'll get back to them, I'll find a better time. And how often do we return to the initial prompting that we have? How often do we actually circle back and do something about that prompting that we had? Honestly, I think most of the time, the opportunity is lost if we don't act on it in the moment, right? Waiting for a better time, sadly, often doesn't materialize. And this has happened in my own life, and then I'm regretful as I look back, like I should have just acted in the moment and responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. 
So imagine this. Could you imagine if Cleopas and his friend did not urge Jesus to stay with them, right? What if they found out later that that was Jesus and they just said, see you later, and they went into their house and they ignored that burning inside of them? Could you imagine the regret they would have had and the disappointment after all of that? So, or, and, 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 Beyond that, if they had done that, if Jesus just went on his way, they went into the house, they also would have missed that amazing experience they had when they went back to Jerusalem with the other believers, and Jesus appeared yet again to them. So we never know what we're going to miss out on when we don't follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. So all of us, myself included, we don't miss the opportunities that God puts before us. I think hospitality at its core, I was thinking about how I personally would define it, and I would define it as welcoming people into your world, right? And that could be your home, which is great, around the table. That could be anywhere. You could be anywhere, literally, and have a sense where you are welcoming people kind of into your little, little world, your sphere around yourself. You know how you say you have that personal bubble? Welcome people into that personal bubble. I have a story which actually I'm, I'm, still makes me kind of sad. Um, I was at the Willow Grove Mall, probably like 10 years ago, sitting in the parking lot, and I look over, two cars over, there's this lady sitting in their driver's seat, and she is sobbing, crying her eyes out. And I was just like kind of paralyzed. I'm like, what do I do? Do I go and say something? Do I, do I offer to pray for her? Do I see if I can help? Like, I literally, I felt frozen. I didn't know what to do. I felt like God wanted me to do something. I just didn't know. I waited, and I waited, and I prayed. And next thing I know, she drove away. And I totally lost that opportunity. And I often wonder what would have happened if I had acted on the prompting that God had given me in that moment. So when you feel that burning, take a chance, right? Invite people over to your house if it's not up to snuff the way that you would prefer, right? Or if you say, oh, we really need to get together, pull out your phone, find a time, right? Don't defer by saying, I'll get back to you soon. Let's not miss out on the opportunities God places along the roads that we walk. So to wrap this all up, even though Jesus was at the table for only a very brief period of time, we have learned a lot from our story today, especially about being spiritually alert, being spiritually in tune. So let's respond in faith if the Holy Spirit is revealing the truth of Jesus to us. If, you, if you're feeling a burning, if you never placed your faith in Jesus, respond in faith. Do not defer. Let's recognize Jesus in Scripture by actually reading his word, right? <laughs> Studying them meditating on them, and having a better understanding of why he came. Let's be energized anew in our privilege of sharing this amazing news with others and respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to offer hospitality, to welcome people into your word, into your world. Uh, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on behalf of our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to do this for us and what great love you have for us and how kind and caring you were to patiently explain the scriptures to these confused followers. It just must have been so much to take in, but thank you that you were kind and caring and did that, Lord, and that we can benefit from that explanation. We are the recipients of you teaching them the greatest Bible study ever, Lord. So... I pray, Lord, that you would, you would keep drawing people to yourself and they would respond in saving faith, Lord. 
Help us as well as those who, us, who are believers, Lord, to respond to the things that you're teaching us and showing us and prompting us to do, Lord. I ask that you would give us a passion for your word and an excitement for sharing it with others, Lord. I ask all this in your name. Amen.